0: Hello and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Jan. Today, I'm joined by Alicia Elliott, lecturer in anthropology at Goldsmiths University of London. We will be talking about her book, The Outside, Migration as Life in Morocco, recently published by Indiana University Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Elliott, for joining us today. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, So let's start with the beginnings of your work as an anthropologist. How did you come to anthropology, the anthropology of Morocco and this book project?
1: So I came to anthropology by chance in the sense that I didn't really know what it was when I applied to study it and I and then it just kind of happened <laughs> and I haven't left yet so so really the my story of engagement with anthropology is one of chance turning out as you know, as something that became a really important part of my life. Um, and that I, that often is the case. I feel also when I speak now with applicants to to university, often you know the conversations I have is you know what is anthropology and and the ways in which you know often your engage the engagement with anthropology at least at first is often by chance. Anyway, that's a whole other story. So the anthropology of Morocco, my, my interest in Morocco and my, uh, you know, my engagement with the country, and I talk about this uh, in the introduction to the book too, very much comes from my own life trajectory. Um, so the, the region where I grew up in Italy is a region that has seen a lot of uh, migration from Morocco. And it has a very strong ties with uh with Morocco because of decades of movement between the two countries of uh, uh, Moroccan migrants and I very much grew up with uh, neighbors and family friends and also people involved in migrant rights activism of my own parents from uh morocco and so people very much involved in my in my early life that would talk about Uh, Morocco in terms of their home and uh, would describe the ways in which for example their visits home in the summer when they were able to visit uh, had you know kind of shaped their experience both of Morocco but also of uh, Italy and um, when I when I was when I decided to to work on, on Morocco for my well my PhD and then other project and then eventually this book project, it was very much um, a desire to to engage with the kinds of um, you know lives that the pe- that people that were that were part of my growing up were talking about, and so this book project very much started with me uh, returning. To Morocco with uh, you know family friends and neighbors and people I had met through different uh, channels in Italy uh, who introduced me to their to their homes back in Morocco. But so that's kind of the why anthropology and Morocco became intersected in my life. But the book project is also in a in a more kind of if you will conceptual sense, but also in a sense of what I think, or what I was trying to do with it in in anthropology and beyond, was really to try to begin to decenter the the ways in which we think about migration, um, and I do this first of all by by positioning my ethnographic and uh conceptual thinking in a place of departure rather than arrival and i'm sure we'll talk about this more later in the interview but basically taking very seriously the work uh, especially of abdelmalek sayyad uh, uh, a really prominent thinker that has really influenced my own thinking about migration um sayyad was a sociologist of of migration uh Focused mainly on migration of between Algeria and France, but really taking as a, as an important step in in rethinking what migration is and does, and uh, the deadly consequences of specific expectations and and imaginations of what migration is and does uh, when they trickle down or up into, for example, policy and migration laws and regulations um, by by. By tracing the ways in which migration is experienced in uh, in places uh, of departure, so that was really the impetus betwi- be, behind the book project to try and and rethink migration and its experience, but also it, its theorization from the perspective of places of departure and and uh, and you know squarely positioning. Uh, my thinking about migration in, in a place of departure and tracing the, the theorizations and expectations and experiences of migration of people who live in the midst, in, in the presence of migration in a place of departure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great to know. It's always very helpful to see you know, how a project came to be. And I want to ask you about the outside um which is in the title of your book so you take the outside as an analytic that permeates everyday life in morocco and you know you you use this concept rather than focusing on migration as a concept and i'm wondering how your time during your fieldwork helped you arrive at this framework and what does this analytical real orientation implicate for migration studies?
1: Yes, um, my kind of decision to orient my engagement with, uh, with migration and um, through, the, through the idea of the outside very much comes from my ethnographic experience. So my realization uh, when I was living in Morocco for my doctoral field work that, yes, there are, you know, classic concepts in in Arabic and even Moroccan dialect that refer to to migration and migrants. Uh, so, for example, the word hijra, so, you know, the, the idea of migration. But when people would be speaking about their own loved ones, family members, uh, or their own projects of migration, it was through uh, concepts like the outside or, or similar kind of... Um, synonyms of of the idea of the outside that these ideas and experiences and uh, theorizations of migration also would come out so the first kind of very both basic and i think fundamental reason why i focus on the idea of the outside um, to understand migration in morocco is because that's the concept that i encountered most powerfully during my field work and in kind of my engagement with the country and with uh, Moroccan uh, interlocutors and friends and, and so on. But there's also kind of, a, 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 b- by doing this, my hope uh, was also from the beginning to kind of challenge the, the kind of naturalized assumptions that I feel often inform uh, understandings of migration especially in terms of uh the re- reasons so the causes and effects of migration and the ways in which migratory movement is uh, theorized but also the ways in which migratory movement uh, is controlled and uh you know uh regulated by by different forces so part of my Kind of push and impulse to focus on on the outside as a uh, as a concept was to to try and un, undo the assumption that basically when we t- talk about migration, the you know the researcher, the people the researcher works with, and the reader all share an understanding of what migration is, does, and means, and no more either conceptual ethnographic. Uh, political personal work is needed because we all know what we're talking about now let's move on to think of what causes is or according to where you're coming from how we control it or how we make it better or worse or so on so it it was also an attempt to to kind of uh, remind first of all myself that migration requires much more if you will, hard work and much more, uh, you know, intellectual humility (laughs) to understand and trace the theorizations that people who are involved in in transnational and local different forms of movement are doing all the time in order to understand it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm very glad that (laughs) you have done that because, yeah, I mean, personally, as a reader, one thing that frustrates me is when, um, authors take for granted concepts like migrants or refugees and we all know what it means and it kind of becomes a blanket concept. So I'm very glad you did this conceptual work. <laughs> um, and out of this conceptual work, um, you were into other um, theoretical threads like temporality, which I was very excited about. So you show us that the outside structures and destructures time in Tadla through major life events, individual bodies, and intimate life moments. Could you tell our listeners about these ideas and especially the temples of life with respect to the outside?
1: I found the uh, temporality a really important way through which to begin to understand and trace the multiple uh, presences that the outside slash migration in understood through the lens of the outside has in places of uh, departure. Uh, such as the area of Morocco where I do my research. Um, and temporality is, I think, a fundam- as other authors have already argued, you know, temporality, I think, is a fundamental way to understand m- the, the experience of migration, but also the ways in which migration is regulated and, and the ways in which, uh, you know, policies and laws kind of Administer life, death, hope through the controlling of certain temporalities. For example, of from visa applications to the to amount of time that one has to wait outside the police office to get their residence permit renewed, and so on. Um, my interest in 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 paying attention to temporality in uh, the Tadla, the area of Morocco where I work, was was because I I felt it it really revealed. The ways in which migration works in and through uh, specific relations and bodies and everyday, even just gestures, um, and the ways in which also people themselves, of course, so this is not a one-way process where people are kind of passive towards the, the force of migration. So people are also, uh, you know, molding and, and intersecting migration in their own uh, in their own ways and through different, uh, you know everyday practices, but focusing on on how uh, the outside intersect with very mundane practices. So you know, the ways in which you brush your hair, or the ways in which you prepare yourself for the day, in the presence of, for example, a migrant husband that is supposed to return, or uh, a child that will be will be calling Uh, from Italy or Spain or money that will be arriving from Germany. And the ways in which these events in the outside uh, really permeate the way in which life in its most granular sense is organized and is experienced. So uh, tracing the ways in which uh, temporality, so both the ways in which uh, migration acquires a specific temporal texture in places of departure um but also the ways in which migration intersects and and often interferes with temporalities that are expected and definitely desired to be of a specific uh, rhythm and uh, and uh, duration and so on so i look at temporality and inter in the ways in which mi- uh, migration you know, um, takes on a temporal dimension, both by tracing, for example, how uh, the possibility, you know, weddings and funerals and circumcision parties are organized around specific temporalities of the outside from like the expectation of of the reply to a visa application, but also to national holidays in Italy and Spain, when... Uh, the father of the child, for example, is hoped to be able to return for a specific party or event. But also, as I was mentioning earlier, also in very kind of small everyday gestures. And I really try throughout the book to take seriously, you know, Abulu God's understanding of ethnographies of the particular, also in the sense of uh, seeing ethnographies of the particular as being able to provide more and deeper understanding of quote unquote grand events and socio-economic socio-political uh, phenomena such as migration so in a way my argument is like tracing how the phenomenon of migration trickles down and intersects with the very way in which a woman may decide you know w- uh, how to to prepare herself for the day is not a kind of a quaint, sweet detail that we can just read, smile at, and move on, w- secure and safe in our own understanding of what migration is and does, but also but actually reveals a whole different dimension and demands specific type of of conceptual and ethnographic work in order to be re understood in the case of migration.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating, and also in terms of temporality, I found your work sort of um, very productive. Like rather than you know seeing temporality as something in which people are stuck, which is often the case in works of migration, you show us how it produces life, not only in you know spaces of arrival, but um, spaces that people um, circulate in, you know, homes that people come back to. So I found that aspect very fascinating. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about the outside, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Tabda, where you did your fieldwork uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with Morocco.
1: Yes, of course. Yes. Um, and maybe I should also mention that, um, you know, the, the whole um, idea of the work, I mean, I mentioned it a bit with your first question, is to try and kind of trace what migration looks like, what it feels, what its experiences in a place of departure. Mm-hmm. So um, my choice uh, to, to work in, in this area of Morocco, which is a rural area, of Morocco, uh, of central Morocco, at the feet of the Atlas Mountains. This is an area that is today quite notorious in Morocco as a place where migrants leave for Southern Europe, especially Italy and Spain. So it's not an area of, one could say, traditional emigration, as is the north of Morocco and actually the very south of Morocco. Uh, And of course, Morocco has a very long... Uh, history of migration and movement very much intertwined with the history of colonialism um and so you know classic uh, countries of of arrival like France and Germany and um uh, and the Netherlands but especially France and Spain in relation to to colonial um history shared colonial histories so there are places in Morocco that are kind of classic places of, of emigration and the area where I work this rural area of central Morocco the Tadla region is a, is an area that um, from which migration started a little later than other areas of the country and uh, it it kind of the orient migration was oriented towards uh, not the classic places of migration as I said France and so on but uh, countries in southern Europe, most like specifically Italy and Spain. And this is because migration uh, started in this region when other countries were starting to to tighten uh, border control. And uh, countries like Italy and Spain still had a more kind of open-ended uh, immigration um, policy, or you could say they, they hadn't yet. Um kind of aligned to other countries, the ways in which they were uh, applying uh, migration control. So it's a very interesting uh, region of Morocco in the sense of thinking of how a more recent uh, you know uh, wave of my of emigration has actually transformed the region very quickly to become today one, as I mentioned one of the one of the regions that is seen as the main, sending area of the whole country and Morocco being one of the main sending areas so one of the main countries of emigration in the world makes also this region one of the main emigration regions uh, of the world.
0: Yeah thank you for um, providing this background uh, for our listeners and my next question is about storytelling and knowledge. So in the book you show us that Knowledge about the outside is produced through stories and storytelling, but also through haziness about the lives of loved ones living in the outside. So what does the juxtaposition of these forms of knowing tell us about how migration shapes life in Tadla?
1: Yes, thank you for this question. It's a really important one and one that... um... I've, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to explore in the book um, in a way that takes seriously storytelling and story sharing as a as a really important form of the production of knowledge. Um, I'm very much influenced as is the whole book as a whole by the work of Abdelmalek Sayad um, and his his work on on Algerian migration to France, and he has a big discussion of the ways in which Uh, knowledge about migration is created collectively between uh, migrants, so people who have left and their neighbours and and family members who who are non-migrants. And he uses this term that I... I have a problem with, I mean, I find it difficult to say that I have a problem with anything (laughs) Sayad has written, given that he's like, you know, the big inspiration of all my work. But he uses the terminology of of collective lie. And while the language of lying I don't think is helpful in the context I'm working with, Mm -hmm. the idea of collectivity and the ways in which, you know, knowledge about, for example, what lies at the other side of the Mediterranean Sea is uh, is never absolute and is always relational and is generated by the intersection of the experiences of migrants, for example, visiting home in the summer months when possible and also the expectations of uh, their friends and relatives and neighbours and the ways in which Knowledge about uh, a migration or about, you know, Italy, for example, in the case of my work, or France, in the case of Sayad's work, is not necessarily uh, something that you know migrants bring back and and relate in kind of a, 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 a in a kind of early kind of you know news report and quite you know kind of abstract way. Mm -hmm. way What Sayad traces is that actually the migrants are often allowed, in inverted commas, to report only certain dimensions of their lives uh, as as migrants, so when they're in the outside. And not only are they allowed, but they're also often willing only to report certain dimensions of that life, because the expectations of people around them is to recount those sides of the story. So in my in the book, I try to trace the ways in which knowledge about the outside is, is generated relationally and i also try to trace as as you pick up in your question the intersection of having I- incredibly precise knowledge so for example you know the the knowledge that uh, uh, people in morocco will have for example on italian migration law or dates of specific changes to to visa applications or, uh, you know, knowledges about specific police stations in a specific town in northern Italy mm. that is known for being a bit more humane, <laughs> better, for want of a better word, in the ways in which they renew uh, residence permits versus another. So there's extreme precise knowledge. But this is combined with a kind of, um, I would say, willingness to be also a, a little um, vague in the ways in which, for example, your own family members, uh, the ways in which your own family members uh, live in the outside. And I discuss how this vagueness is both um, tactical in a way, in the sense that, you um, There are a lot of stereotypes about the kinds of jobs and the kinds of degrading conditions some migrants uh, have to endure in the outside. But I think uh, my argument is also that this vagueness about the modes of life in the outside is also connected to the fact that what really counts and matters is the relation with the outside, is the fact that the family member is in the outside and what uh, they do in the outside is kind of, of of less importance but i i also wanted to say that this question of of the collective making of knowledge so is um is important also for the ways in which people in the region are very uh, explicit about the fact that they know very well that life is hard in the outside, mm-hmm. and I think this keenness to specify that they are basically not the you know the gullible peasants mm-hmm. that not only you know Italy and Spain but also their own co nationals in in urban centers like Rabat and Casablanca imagine them to be. So there's a very um, there's a reiter- very explicit reiteration of the fact that you know people will will tell me you know we know that in europe you know it's hard that even if you have 5 degrees you'll probably end up working in a construction site we know about racist police on the streets um and this so basically uh, uh, it's 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 made as a point of um even like as as an important point to to explain to others, <laughs> include first of all to their own, you know, other Moroccans from more urban centers. That there's nothing, you know, naive about these move, these transactional movements. If anything, there's a deep knowledge of the of the complexities and difficulties involved in mm-hmm. in this movement to the outside.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because one part of your work I found so powerful was that you know, I think you're really decentering this assumption that, you know, people in the global South really aspire to, you know, Europe or the US and, you know, see these places as, you know, perfect ideals to get to. And your work really powerfully shows us that this is not the case. And um, people from, you know rural Morocco or other regions are active producers of this kind of knowledge about um, those places so I really appreciated that um, another part of your work that stuck with me was um, one of these quotes from Salima, one of your interlocutors, she says I'm married to the outside when she talks about her husband to you so can you tell us more about how the outside mediates marriage and how does this dimension of your work speak to gendered literature on spouses left behind, so to speak, by migrants who leave?
1: Yes. So
0: the a very,
1: you know. Uh, The outside and migration more generally mediates marriage in a number of different and extremely powerful ways. And the book goes through the most obvious ones. So from the fact that, um, you know, entry into Europe currently, basically without a family reunification uh, visa or equivalent, is basically impossible. So I think it's first of all important to you know, make clear and be explicit about, you know, all the kind of media attention to, for example, visa marriages and the kind of attention to how marriage can be used as as a way to obtain specific types of rights that, by the way, other people have without needing to, for example, marry someone. Um, it's it's really important to connect the ways in which migration laws and policies somehow well first of all are incredibly patriarchal uh, and very much based and imagined around the heterosexual uh, family. So in many ways, uh, f- for women especially in the in in the current moment, entry into Italy and Spain is often Incredibly hard to do uh, without having, you know, a, a family member and a very close family member. So not a cousin, <laughs> or sometimes even say a grandchild, um, but basically a husband uh, in in Europe. So all this to say that the relationship between marriage and migration very is very much, uh, you know, inter- intersects very powerfully with the ways in which marriage figures so prominently in the imagination of migrants at the heart of migration policies. But the ways in which you see the effects of this in, uh, in the Tadla is um, is a different level. So I, I trace both the ways in which uh, migrant uh, men uh, are, are considered kind of uh, generally kind of a good marriage match for the kinds of possibilities that they open for the outside. But I also try a bit like how you picked up <laughs> really well and you put it much better than I do. I think, you know, my attempt to both tracing, for example, you know, the importance of the outside in people's lives, but also tracing how this outside is is co-produced by, by uh, local ideas and is not kind of a, this overwhelming force that kind of crushes, if anything, it's it's kind of, it emerges from the theorizations and experiences of the people themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the same case with marriage. Um, So on the one hand, there is a very clear understanding that um, one of the few ways to make it into Europe is through marriage to to a migrant, but also there's very clear understandings and discussions and analysis of the the problems that marriage with a migrant brings. First of all, the long and often incredibly long periods of absence and uh, of loneliness and or separation. From your loved one or from the person you have married, and um, I bring this up because your question about you know this concept of the left behind, which mm-hmm. is incredibly prominent in the in the migration and also development literature, mm-hmm. um, and I, f- I find it very interesting that even the language itself of the left behind, especially applied to women. I mean, <laughs> you know, my you know my feminist sensor is very aware of the of the real problems of you know <laughs> uh, categorizing you know women as left behind mm-hmm. uh, by virtue of the status of their of their husbands but I th- what's interesting about the literature is that often uh, women married to to emigrants um so women whose po- spouse live in in another country and who are are often waiting to migrate themselves but they are haven't yet are often seen as kind of perfect uh, ground, if you will, to to evaluate uh, things such as female empowerment. Mm. And often there's a lot of literature that traces how, for example, you know, women uh, married to to immigrant men who are not in the country often acquire new responsibilities, new types of jobs, are more involved in the in in kind of bureaucratic life behind the household. And this is seen often as a kind of quote unquote good sign for, uh, you know, Female empowerment in a in a in an area of departure, so in emigrant areas, and I try in the book to really interrogate this, I think, quite simplistic assumption, um, and very much, uh, you know, guided by uh, Saba Mahmoud's the late Sabah Mahmoud's work on really interrogating what does freedom and empowerment, especially in gender terms, means and looks like for the people themselves. And often in the literature, there's a sense that, you know, being married to 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 a migrant will have good or bad impact on your own independence, for example, back home. And I try in the book to trace how actually concepts of child empowerment are not necessarily the most urgent uh, concepts that the women I I know and, and work with are engaging with, uh, you know, as Waiting and hoping for um, a married life that is considered normal to begin is the main, often the main preoccupation and what you know fills in days, weeks and months and years of, of women who, who are hoping for their married life to begin in the way that they had imagined it to, which generally would, would mean for them to be able to, to also uh, travel to Europe and, and, uh, and begin a life there. So I think um, this idea of the of the left behind is very fertile for for specific types of um, studies that take ideas of female empowerment and freedom as a bit like we were discussing before as migration as something that we already and all sh- know and all share what it does and means. And in my work, I try to kind of take a step back from those you know assumptions and actually try to engage with the more urgent preoccupations of the people that I know and I've worked with and who, you know, have taught me different ways of understanding these these concepts and debates.
0: Fascinating. Um, no, now that we've talked a bit about the assumptions around those left behind, I am also curious about those who return, especially a man who returned to Tatla from the outside. So how the expectations around mobility and immobility for those who return intersect with masculinity? Yes,
1: so I have a chapter on, um, on basically the traces, the return of uh, a migrant uh, to a family that I know very well. Um and I, basically in the chapter, I traced the the return visit of a migrant from Europe from Italy specifically, and the the consequences of this visit and what I try to trace are the complexities of return, so as much as return is uh something of huge importance in you know migration stories and experiences um. What I try to show is also the the kind of underpinning tensions, and of 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 someone returning and having to engage with the kinds of expectations and requirements and judgments and observations of those who have who are not migrants, but that that are observing through your own way of being, your body, your attitude, your way of spending or not spending money the way you walk in the street, the way in which you decide to renovate or not renovate your house, are evaluating the ways in which you have encountered the outside and the ways in which you have, well, in many ways embodied it in the, in a way that is recognizable and acceptable. And this very, and I trace especially how these evaluations um, blend and kind of, shape and and um, very much with conceptions and expectations around gender and the ways in which, um, especially expe- expectations around masculinity and the ways in which uh, those who are, ident- are identified and identify themselves as men are expected to to be. And the ways in which once you have also become a migrant, these expectations of you as a man become coupled with expectations of you as a migrant, coupled in such a powerful way that if, as in the case I trace in my book, if once you return, you're not able to, I suppose, uh, deliver (laughs) or provide the kinds of behaviors and gestures and actions that people expect of you as a migrant, there are all their understanding of you also become the understanding of you as a as a gendered subject comes also under scrutiny, and it's 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 an attempt also to address the kind of very difficult some would argue nearly impossible situation in which. Migrants find themselves when they return home, and and also to suggest that sometimes leaving regularly for the outside becomes a way to also maintain good relations with, if you will, the inside or 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 your or your home.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you no, know, now that we discussed mobility and your contributions to the migration literature i want to turn to your methodology um, which is you know very closely related to how you came to these innovations so instead of focusing on those on the move to understand mobility across borders you focus on those who stay put and Can you speak to how this focus contributes to methodologies of migration and to ethnographic methods more broadly?
1: As I say at the the beginning of uh, this conversation, um, my work is, is very much influenced and kind of inspired by the work of Abdul Malek Sayyad. Um, an Algerian sociologist of migration that really puts at the heart of his work, and insists through the, you know, incredible number of publications he produced throughout his life, of the importance of seeing, uh, you know migration as a what he says in a very one could say anthropological way a total social fact so something that mm. it, it permeates all aspects of life mm. and he, he makes this argument to to present and if you will rehumanize in the kind of literature and scholarly debates that he is engaging with in his time the the migrant especially the north african migrant in france but one of the most powerful, both simple and powerful ways in which he makes this argument of migration as a total social fact is by arguing that an immigrant is always also an emigrant. So, and he he argues that if we do not understand migration as something that has an origin, both historical, so for example, in the case of, of Algeria, but also Morocco with deep colonial roots, for example, uh, we We miss a whole chunk of the picture not only of migration, both of migration as a phenomenon as a socioeconomic as a cultural phenomenon, but also as the as the the migrant him or her or themselves so so what he suggests is that if we we need to see migration as a total social fact and one of the most important ways to do that is to uh, consider places of departure and not only places of arrival. And what I take from his work that is really important is, you know, you ask about methodology. He, one of his central points is that th- that shifting our understanding to include in our theorization of migration also places of departure is not just quote, unquote, a methodological move, I say, quote, unquote, unjust, because, of course, for me, method is theory, so it's one mm-hmm. and the same. But, but the argument is making that it's not just like, say, we learn, we have more information about migration, but we are actually, you know, decentering the the very understanding of what migration is. Mm-hmm. And we're also, therefore, interrogating dominant understandings of, of migration, because by by including methodologically places of departure, we are also then requiring a a rewiring Mm -hmm. (laughs) of our, you know, naturalized assumptions of what migration is and does. And, uh, you know, Sayad and of course others argue that, for example, migration studies and the theorizations of migration, but also the policy thinking around migration is generally, if not always, made from the point of view of country of, so-called uh, arrival, so you know what are called in the literature receiving countries and this means that you know issues around migration are always seen in terms of the country of arrival which of course are often specific types of country with specific types of colonial history specific types of racial relations with mm-hmm. the migrant mm-hmm. um, and so for example you know questions for example of assimilation of migrants or like th- uh, really fundamental theories that everybody claims we moved beyond, but we haven't of, of migration seen in terms of a push of poverty and pull of wealth. So push pull theories that dominate the, the understanding of migration and definitely at the policy making level still uh, today are, are so powerful because migration is basically imagined also conceptually both conceptually and experientially and as a problem of policy if you will from the perspective of uh, arrival so for me it was very important to decenter this approach to migration and uh, and the most powerful way that i know how to do decentering uh, because of my training as an anthropologist is through ethnography and basically by positioning my, eth- my ethnographic understanding in a place of of departure was an was an attempt to for a beginning, I'm not claiming I've done it, I I feel I, I'm trying and I'm you know I'm I'm starting to, to kind of decenter the, the very ways in which we understand you know the, the method but also the thinking around migration.
0: Well, I think it's an amazing start, <laughs> and I think you know it's way beyond an attempt. Um, I'm very glad you took on this work. Um, and throughout the book, as an ethnographer, we see you negotiating multiple positions as guest, as roommate, as friend, among others. How did you grapple with positionality as you conducted multi-sited, multi-scalar? a multi-layered fieldwork, in your words?
1: Yes, positionality is a really interesting question. And I, I addressed this in the introduction of the book, but also I do try throughout the book to be present and to be open about the complexities of, you know, my position at different uh, at different scales and in different moments. And the... The thing about positionality, and I write this in the introduction, is what I've learned, I suppose, with this work is just how deeply relational positionality is. So there's obvious markers of identity uh, that I think are both uh, nearly cliché, but also important, also politically, to acknowledge. So, for example, one's positioning, in my case, as a Southern European in a North African context... Uh, uh, as someone who, who identifies as a woman, as uh, someone who who most importantly for this type of work, as someone who has access to movement. And, th- and therefore the glaring uh, disparities that have very deadly consequences on my ability to move vis-a-vis the inability to move of a lot of the people I work with and with whom I have now like, decades of friendships and relationships. So that kind of positionality in terms, if you will, of power, uh, privilege, but also different uh, kind of histories that that one brings to the table when one engages with research are really important to acknowledge. And I think it's it's fundamental that one does so and I do this but I think it's also important to to kind of acknowledge how these positions are never even the kind of classic identity markers are def are are, are deeply relational and basically uh, ch- your positionality also changes in relation to the person you are engaging with and the and the the weight of specific identity markers if you will um, shifts in, in different you know, moments, both during the ethnography but also during the writing process, during the reflection of what you've written and during, you know, for, by now a very kind of long term engagement with um, with friends and research participants and interlocutors in Morocco. Um, and I say this because I think one of the things I've realized by having engaged by basically taking ages to finish this book, <laughs> so having it <laughs> in my life for a very long time, is that I realized how, you know, certain things that I, that I first experienced as a, uh, you know, for example, as a young, even undergraduate student. Um, I see now very differently because of things that have also happened in my own life. So, for example, I mentioned in the introduction how um, a lot of stories I collected when I when I lived in Morocco as a as a doctoral student uh, about uh, miscarriages and pregnancies and the ways in which migration intersects the very experience of of uh, reproduction and having children and also the many stories of women who who framed their repeated miscarriages, for example, in terms of, of an as very strong, powerful absence of migrant husbands and the support and love and and the uh, you know, family life that that offers. my understanding of these kinds of um, experiences, for example, really shifted actually while I was already in the process of writing the book when I myself had two miscarriages. And I started looking back at these interviews that I had collected, some of them nearly nearly a decade previously, because this is a very long-term work. And I started seeing how my positioning, if you will, going back to your question of positionality, towards these stories and the effects they had also physically, if you will, <laughs> in rereading them in light of my experience, was had developed. Now, this is not to say that because I also experienced, you know, pregnancy and loss, um, my understanding is, if you will, better or more, you know, conclusive than, than my understanding when I first started this project. It's... Um, and I have, I do actually have a problem in the idea that shared experience alone, taking away, you know, for example, the different forms of uh, experience, privil- privilege, racial hierarchies, and so on, um, access to movement is, is problematic. Um, but at the same time, it's just it's it's an attempt to explain how i i under- i understand positionality as something that is never fixed and something that is both relational and also that develops and transforms and changes through time also through the i think through the critical rethinking of your own work as an anthropologist
0: sorry that was a very long
1: answer to a short question
0: <laughs> no, this was an amazing answer, and thank you very much for you know not only giving us a lot to think with in terms of positionality, but also sharing um, sharing a bit of you with us. Um, my last question is about what is next for you? What are some new projects, questions, issues uh, that you're grappling with right now if you have been able to with the pandemic? <laughs>
1: I think, um, I mean, this is a really important question. And uh, if if I have to be honest about my <laughs> answer is my hope is to take like a deep breath and kind of to take time to, you know, regroup and rethink. The book was just uh, published last, last month. And as I mentioned, it was, a, it's a very, it's a, it's a project that has been in my life uh, for a very long time. And I think, often in academia we we don't feel we're really allowed to say that we need some rest <laughs> and we need some time and we need some the the right to move slowly and often i think there's this pressure and i and i'm sure you know one feels it at all stages of the encounter with academic life that you know the pressure to do a project but but also to think what what comes next um so on the one hand my my plan is to take some time to 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 think and to to kind of allow myself to to do some slow thinking uh, on the other hand of course you mentioned the pandemic so many things have happened in uh, in my own life and in the lives of people who with whom i have become incredibly connected because of anthropology and because of my work and uh, one one uh, thing that i've um, i've been thinking about a lot and and is probably going to be the next you know project that i want to work with uh, collaboratively with with others is to 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 trace the experience of, of lockdown in uh, especially in Italy and Morocco, which are the two countries where I have, uh, you know, the most connections with, in the in the context of migration. So, for example, um, uh, in in Italy. Uh, a group of, uh, of young migrant activists which, which I've been involved with for many, many years have just produced uh, um, some work on, on racial profiling that happened in Italy during lockdown and the ways in which migrants but also Italians not identified as Italians, the, the ways in which national lockdown has impacted their lives and has taken the form often of... of basically explicit uh, racial profiling in their encounters with the authorities. And also on the other side, a lot of my of of uh, long-term friends, uh, we've been sharing experiences of lockdown. And in Morocco, there was, I, I wrote this down because I always get the name, this, uh, there's been a state of health emergency in Morocco that was declared in March 2020 and has been already renewed 13 times. And so there's, which, which means it's quite it depends on the city, but p- relatively strict, um, you know, c- curfews and and so on. So life being quite constricted by uh, the powerful forces of the state, plus your own experience uh, of uh, the the pandemic itself and the precautions that you're taking. So definitely, I'm. I'm I'm thinking uh you know with with friends and 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 both in Morocco and Italy in the both similar and, and different ways in which lockdown is experienced and and for countries that are coming out of lockdown the the kind of aftermath of of lockdown, especially in in lives that are that kind of came under scrutiny during the, the state lockdowns and the, the kind of understandings of how bodies should be organized and policed in a moment of, of
0: crisis. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Elliot, for joining us and for your insights and for reminding us that it's okay to take some rest. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm your host, Aliza Arucal. This discussion of The Outside, Migration as Life in Morocco, published by Indiana University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.